My name is Tariq Zaire, and you're listening to The Science of Philosophy. Episode 1, Science versus Philosophy. Jack had been a heroin addict for 15 years, living out of his car. Thinking he had a chest cold one day, he went to the emergency room at San Francisco General Hospital. He was diagnosed with lung cancer. Three days later, he moved into hospice care. He never went back to his car. Jack kept a journal, which he occasionally shared with his caregivers. One day in it, he wrote, Over the years, I've put things off. I figured there was always plenty of time later on. At least I've managed to do one major project. I finished that training to be a motorcycle mechanic. Now, they tell me I got less than six months. I'm gonna fool them. I'm gonna make it longer than that. Ah, who am I kidding? To tell the truth, I'm scared, angry, tired, and confused. I'm only 45 years old, and I feel like I'm 145. I have so much that I want to do, and now there isn't even a time to sleep. In his book, The Five Invitations, Frank Ostaseski tells about how people, when they are dying, it's easy for them to recognize that every minute, every breath counts. They're apt to think things like, what have I been doing with my life? Why am I wasting my time on this job? Why have I allowed my relationship with my partner, my parent to fall into disrepair? Why haven't I unleashed what I've always felt to be best about me? But the truth is that death is always, with all of us, an integral part of life itself. We're all dying from the moment we were born. You are dying right now, and you can't escape it. There's an old Babylonian myth in which a merchant in Baghdad sends his servant to the marketplace for supplies. But the man returns a short while later, empty-handed, pale, and shuddering with fear. He tells his boss that a woman in the crowd bumped into him. When he looked at her more closely, he recognized her as death. Quote, she looked at me and made threatening gestures, the servant says. Now lend me your horse, and I will ride away from the city and avoid my fate. I will go to Samara, and there death will not find me. So the merchant lends his servant his horse. The man rides off in a wild fury. Later, the merchant goes to the marketplace to buy his own supplies. There he sees death and asks why she threatened his servant earlier that day. That was not a threatening gesture, Death replies. It was only a start of surprise. I was astonished to see him in Baghdad, for I had an appointment with him tonight in Samara. Death is coming for us all, and yet we do our best to cling on, to tighten our grip on whatever we have, as if it will stop the inevitable. 
If you learned tomorrow that you had a month to live, what would you do differently? And what does that say about what you're doing now? When we live our lives ignoring the fact that death for ourselves and for others is always a possibility, we accept bad substitutes for happiness, bad substitutes for justice, and bad substitutes for love. Embracing the truth that all things inevitably must come to an end encourages us not to wait in order to begin living each moment in a manner that is deeply engaged and therefore philosophic. In a dialogue, the Phaedo, Socrates says that philosophy is just preparing oneself to die. When the normal course of everyday life offers very little true happiness or meaning, when we regularly feel the dull aches of bad work, empty leisure, and disoriented politics, then philosophy becomes not just the practice of the few, but the need of the many. And a need we feel today, I might suggest, in the nihilism and material exhaustion of our world. Scott Samuelson, in his book, The Deepest Human Life, talks about the myth of Socrates tells at the end of Plato's Republic about what happens to us when we die. Socrates claims that a man by the name of Er was slain in battle, and when his compatriots came to deal with the dead ten days later, his body had not decomposed at all. On his funeral pyre, Er miraculously came back to life and relayed in detail what the afterlife is really like. Souls go on a beautiful or horrible journey depending on how they had lived. At the end of a thousand years, they get to select their next life. Many refuse the life of a human, still bitter about the sufferings in their previous life. Ajax, the strongest of the warriors, at least he likes to think so, chooses to become a lion. Orpheus, the sweetest of the singers, enters the body of an elegant swan. Agamemnon turns into an eagle, and so on. Last to choose an heir's story is Odysseus, who finds and selects a life neglected by the others, the life of a common person. He boasts that even had he chosen first, he would have made the exact same selection. In his analysis, Scott Samuelson wrote, quote, You may toil as a factory worker. You may be cruising in a lucrative career. You may be an out-of-work father, a single mother, happily married or desperately single. You may be or have been a rebellious teen, straight-A nerd or wallflower. You may have a brain injury. You may even be a professor of philosophy. You surely have quirks, hidden hopes and fears, your own bizarre little ways of loving and passing the time, and a thousand and one other snowflake lacings of the basic patterns and the soul of Odysseus. Inspiration to the most engaging poem ever sung could well have slipped into your body, your body, at birth. And that's why my favorite philosopher is you. The confrontation of the fact of death, the serious appraisal of what we're doing, living in the relationship to what's meaningful, that's the quote-unquote examined life. That's philosophy.
said I was in my early forties with a lot of life before me. When a moment came that stopped me on a dime, I spent most of the next days looking at the X-rays, talking about the options, and talking about sweet time. I asked him when it sank in that this might really be the real end. How's it hit you when you get that kind of news? Man, what'd you do? And he said, I went skydiving. I went Rocky Mountain climbing. I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Blue Manchin. said, someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. <clears throat> so what happens when we realize, as Tim McGraw puts it in his song, that we should live like we're dying because we are and every moment of time is precious? What what life do you genuinely want to live if you didn't have any of your inhibitions holding you back? Would you go skydiving or climb the Rocky Mountains? What then? Maybe you just want to enjoy life while you can with your friends and family. Maybe you want to leave behind like wealth and memories to your family so that they can be happy when you're gone. Maybe you want to prepare for the afterlife by devoting yourself to the teachings and practices of your religious faith. Maybe there are multiple urges playing like a game of tug of war inside of you um, and you're kind of just confused more than anything. Plato compared our minds to a two-horse carriage. In a well-ordered soul, reason guides the two horses of appetite and spirit. So far from, you know, getting rid of passion, desire, and like righteous anger, they, for Plato, are the engines of movement. However, ultimately they must be reined in and ruled by reason otherwise the carriage never arrives at any meaningful destination all of this is to say that we are extremely confused about what we should be doing in life and perhaps thinking about it can do us some good if you're like me nobody ever sat you down and told you quote like this is who you are this is what your role is in the world. This is how you do this. You know, we were never given an instruction manual for life. And yet we're expected to live it all the same as if we're putting together some incoherent directionless Ikea furniture. And, you know, we're sure a screw must have rolled under the oven because it's not here and it's supposed to go here and we don't know what to do. <laughs> the only thing, you know, worse than this maze of confusion is the sense of urgency we have because despite our uncertainty we still have to do something even making no choice is a choice in and of itself this is what some of the existentialists in the 20th century referred to as thrownness we've all been sort of tossed into the world and now we have to do what we can with what we've got so what should we do well first things first if we have to do something 
we should probably maybe come up with a hierarchy of things we would like to do you know to maybe want to go skydiving or, or rock climbing for some things this hierarchy is easy for instance should we eat gravel or should we eat like normal edible food hmm i think let's go with edible food even if it's like your mom's meatloaf and you hate it it's still gonna provide some nutrition we prefer that to die i think <laughs> for me at least okay um what about when we wake up should we get out of bed well maybe we'd like to sleep in but laying in bed all day would be like really boring and unpleasant after a while maybe we want to watch tv too and eventually go outside or see some friends okay we're, we're rolling this seems easy but now we're reaching some more difficult choices like how should we treat our friends when we see them should we lie and cheat them to get what we want what about strangers is it okay to lie and cheat them is our system of government organized in the way we want it to be? Who should we vote for in the next election? Should we vote at all? While we're asking questions, why does anything exist? Who am I? Why did the sun catch fire? How does time move? Why does time move? In the words of Steve Buscemi in that great summit of cinema, Spy Kids 2, does God hide in heaven because he too lives in fear of what he's created? What I hope is clear by now is that while merely thinking about things can yield many useful answers to pressing questions that we have, without some standard of evaluation and some systematized empirical means of measuring how parts of the world match up to that standard, we're quickly going to get overwhelmed. It's my suggestion to you that science is an essential part of that process. We need its unbiased, peer-reviewed, empirical observations and measurements to live our fullest lives, or to know how to live our fullest lives. Maybe our standard of what we should do is whatever will make us happy. That seems like a good place to start. How can science help us in that endeavor? Well, countless scientific studies have shown that our intuitions about what will make us happy are often deeply mistaken. In his book, Stumbling on Happiness, Harvard psychologist Dan Gilbert goes through these studies with humor and care. To take one of my favorite examples, which I always share when I can, let me ask you a question. Would you rather win millions of dollars tomorrow or become paraplegic? Obviously, all of us would choose the money. And yet, when scientists measure the happiness of people who win the lottery versus people who are newly formed paraplegics, they find that after a year or so, the paraplegics are more or less just as happy as the lottery winners. Are you, are you kidding me? If you asked me, you know, before I read this study what my intuition was, I would have bet you $10 trillion that my happiness would have been permanently lowered if I became paraplegic, and that would have been permanently improved had I won the money, but my intuition was totally wrong. <laughs> you know, I'm just thinking about all of the time I've spent in my life trying to avoid becoming paraplegic and trying to make money, and how all of that time has more or less been misspent. It turns out that those two things don't affect our happiness as much as my actions seem to assume that they do. And only through the rigor of scientific study can we really understand this unintuitive truth. Another one of my favorite stories, which showcases the utility of science, is that in the past it was thought that illness was caused by an excess or a deficiency in like these basic elements. So like plague 
was caused by too much bile, therefore they would get leeches to suck out blood if you had an illness caused by that imbalance. Um, and infections, which are really bad if you've been stabbed or something, which a lot of people were in those times, they were thought to be the result of like too much pus being in your body. So when a wound released pus, medieval doctors assumed with some validity that it meant it was healing. So they logically concluded that in order to accelerate this healing, that they would try to do whatever they could to a wound to make it release as much pus as possible, which meant rubbing it vigorously with sandpaper or with dirt, whatever they had lying around, and then just like wrapping it up with the grimy bandages as tight as they could so that when they released the bandages, all of this puss would just come pouring out and, and, and boy did it. And to them, that was a sign that look how, look how fast your wound is healing. Of course, this is maybe one of the worst things you could do to a wound, but they didn't know that yet. It was only when this like famous alchemical magician guy comes along who also kind of studies medicine and he suggests a breakthrough medical practice where um, instead of trying to treat the wound directly he told people if you can just get the blade or whatever caused the wound and and rub that with like a mixture of you know owl's blood and ground up cat bones or whatever alchemical stuff they had then the wound it inflicted the blade that is will, will heal better so the doctors at first they were kind of incredulous they um they tried it out and since they weren't, you know, scraping the wounds with sandpaper anymore, but just treating the blade, the wounds started healing miraculously well as compared to what they were, they were before. And the doctors were like, oh my gosh, this, this treatment, it works so well. And it, and it caught on across the world for hundreds of years. And it was only like a couple of hundred years after that they realized it wasn't the magic spell that was doing the healing. It was that the spell had gotten them to stop doing these awful, awful things to the wounds that they were doing before. And so this story just goes to show how, you know, going beyond our own intellectualizing and actually gathering empirical observations in a, in a rigorous, peer-reviewed way is a much more sure way of arriving at the truth and, and in the end helping people. Science is the act of letting nature into the conversation we have with ourselves about what's true. And this is hard because nature doesn't speak English or Italian or Chinese, but she does seem to speak math. A scientist, a good one, is a perfect mathematical mirror to the world. When they go home, they may very well have complex opinions on politics, metaphysics, or religion, but when they're in the lab, if they're a good scientist, they take in observations and they record them. Those observations are incredibly accurate and are without a doubt one of the best methods we have for arriving at the truth. And the potentially fatal flaw in philosophy is that nearly every philosopher throughout history makes claims about the world which trespass overtly into the realm of science. But we know that if we want to arrive at the truth, just thinking about it and scraping together a few biased anecdotes is utterly inadequate in getting there. Philosophers aren't just measuring and recording devices who in their free time are human. They're human all the time. 
Their task is to cobble together out of all of the raw facts of the world some semblance of a vision of how we should live in the world given that life is precious and that we want to make the best of it before we inevitably die. And I want to emphasize that if you're listening to this thinking that you can wipe your hands of the questions of how to live, you're wrong. Perhaps you think you've got the answers you need from your religion and you don't need to worry about any of this stuff. But what is your religion? Is your holy book not a complex, confusing tome of text desperately in need of interpretation? As soon as you engage in that act of interpretation, you're practicing philosophy. Furthermore, why your specific religion? There are hundreds of deities and faiths which all make the same claim to truth and wisdom, which, if any, is correct. As soon as you ask that question, you're practicing philosophy. Maybe you wonder whether focusing on the fact that there is so much uncertainty regarding how we should live only serves to paralyze us in doubt, and maybe it's just better to take a leap of faith into irrationality. Again, this question is philosophical too. But if philosophy is ever going to be more than the mere asking of questions, which art often does better anyway in my opinion, it has to integrate science into itself. That's the spirit with which this podcast will embark. Each episode, I'll go through the philosophy of an idea or of a particular thinker and see what the relevant scientific studies in psychology, biology, and physics have to say about it. Some ideas will be proven correct, some will remain ambiguous, and some will be flat out wrong. If this sounds like something that would be valuable to you, feel free to subscribe or follow me on Twitter. And next time, I'll be jumping into Nietzsche's ideas on religion, time, and the good life. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to review it and leave feedback. I really do value your thoughts and opinions. I'll see you next time. First, I want to ask you, what is what is the point of philosophy? It's not, there's not a point. <laughs> Why do you say that? Because it's just thinking.